City. WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app. Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. Following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. Paul is not concerned about how rich a man is, that he might be a leader. He's not concerned about how much clout in the community he might have. He's not concerned about whether he's run his business well. Those are not issues that come into the point of leadership. In fact, it is my own opinion that where evangelical churches are going astray is that they are pulling men out of the business realm who have been successes in their business and putting them into church leadership positions, and that will really end up in a sterile church if they're not also godly men. That's my own opinion of what I observe. Men who have money, men who have prestige, men who have clout in the community, and men who are executives in their fields have been put into church leadership, and the two don't always go together. So Paul, in verse 1, speaks about the significance of a leader of this office. And therefore, from verses 2 to 7, he speaks about the standards for church leadership. And I've told you before that there is only one standard. There is only one qualification. And that is found in verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach. There must be no accusation that will stick of an area in his life that is sinful, that is wrong. This is Verse by Verse, and we have been studying 1 Timothy chapter 3 about church leadership. Now let me recap where we've been so far. The Apostle Paul was concerned because the church at Ephesus was corrupt because of their leaders. There were men in leadership positions who did not belong there, and the whole church was falling apart because of the poor leadership. So Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to straighten out the church leaders. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is a call to the church then and now to evaluate the men who are pastors and also the men who are deacons. As Paul started chapter 3, he highlighted the significance of leadership. He said, it is a fine work, it is a noble work. Therefore, the point is this, a noble work demands a noble kind of man. So Pastor Steve, our teacher, is now ready to go, and he is going to continue teaching us from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Would you open your Bibles, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. In recent years, it seems to me, as I have pastored Lakeside and have met other pastors and read things and been in touch with some Christian leaders around the country, that more and more evangelical churches are changing their form of government to elder rule. It just seems to be a growing trend. I think that there are churches who are discovering that this is what the Bible has taught all along, and they're going to plurality of leaders for their form of church government. They see it clearly in the Bible, and they're going to it. But the thing that concerns me, and I am concerned about this, is that I hear and I observe and I see a lot of churches who are so quick to go to this biblical system that they put men in office who really don't belong in office. Just to have the elder system, it seems that there is a great movement to get to that place, but oftentimes the men who are leading 
the church ought not to be leading the church. And I'm greatly concerned about that. Just this last week, I had the opportunity to have breakfast with Elwood McQuaid, who's a Bible teacher for the Moody Bible Institute. He was at Trinity College for their Bible conference. And we were discussing this. Elwood travels all over the country, in fact, all over the world. He also reiterated that to me, that there are churches that have men who ought not to be in leadership position. And he was telling me about some of the instances that he has come up against. When I was in Minnesota on vacation, I told you a few weeks ago that I discussed this very issue with a pastor there, and it's the same thing that he is saying, that there are churches who are quick to go to elder rule, but they are not very careful about who they put in the office of an elder. And to me, that is vital. Not so much the system, but the quality and the character of the men who lead the church. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is also concerned about that. He is concerned because the church at Ephesus, which Paul sent Timothy, was corrupt because of the leadership. They also had an elder form of church government, but they had men in office who did not belong in office. And there was a whole church that was really going down the tubes because of the poor leadership. And so Timothy is sent there, and he is urged to stay on and to get things in order. And so now, in chapter 3, Paul comes to the heart of this letter. And the heart of this letter is to get the leadership straightened out. And so really, I believe chapter 3 is a call to the church to evaluate the men who are pastors and also the men who are deacons. And he will deal with that starting at verse 8. He says in verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. He speaks, first of all, the significance of leadership. And the significance of leadership is that it is a fine work. It is a noble work. That word can be also translated, it is an excellent work. It is a beautiful work. It is a noble work. Therefore, the point is this, a noble work demands a noble kind of a man. A work of this magnitude and this character and this quality demands a certain man of that type of magnitude and quality. Paul is not concerned about how rich a man is, that he might be a leader. He's not concerned about how much clout in the community he might have. He's not concerned about whether he's run his business well. Those are not issues that come into the point of leadership. In fact, it is my own opinion that where evangelical churches are going astray is that they are pulling men out of the business realm who have been successes in their business and putting them into church leadership positions, and that will really end up in a sterile church if they're not also godly men. That's my own opinion of what I observe. Men who have money, men who have prestige, men who have clout in the community, and men who are executives in their field have been put into church leadership, and the two don't always go together. So Paul, in verse 1, speaks about the significance of a leader of this office. And therefore, from verses 2 to 7, he speaks about the standards for church leadership. And I've told you before that there is only one standard. There is only one qualification. And that is found in verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach. There must be no accusation that will stick of an area in his life that is sinful, that is wrong. He may fall into sin at times, as we all do. He's not perfect. But there is no one area that stands out as an ongoing problem area in his life that everybody can point to and say, look at that. He's not a model in that area. And so because life is made up of many different areas, the Apostle Paul deals with the areas of our lives. And I believe that all the other qualifications that Paul speaks of are really areas of life in which the man must be above reproach. 
He speaks, first of all, the moral area of his life, and therefore he says that he must be the husband of one wife. And I told you the other week that I am convinced that Paul is not dealing with marital status here. He is dealing with the fact that a man must be a one-woman man. He must be committed to his wife. He must be a man who is madly in love with his wife, who has eyes for her and her only. He's not flirtatious. He's not interested in other women. He is committed to her. That's the moral area of his life. Secondly are the mental areas of life. This is that our mind must be in the right order. And he gives three areas. He says that he must be temperate, which means balanced. He's not given to extremes. He's one who's balanced in his view of things. Secondly, he is to be prudent, which means that he is to be sensible. He's to be cautious. He is sober-minded. He's not rash. He doesn't just jump to the first thing that comes down the road. And thirdly, he has to be respectable, which means well-ordered, well-organized. His life is in order. He has the discipline of mind to order his life and priorities. Tonight, we want to begin to look at the social area. The social area, that is, how do I get along with my fellow man? How do I get along in society? How do I hit it off with people? Not so much personality, but virtuous qualities that would affect our social life. And there is one word that will start us off, and this is the only word we'll look at tonight, is he must be hospitable. Or as the authorized version says, given to hospitality. It's very easy to overlook this word. Very easy. An elder must be hospitable. Now, a lot of people misunderstand this term. They think that hospitality means that you invite your friends over for dinner. That's not what it means in the biblical sense. Others think that hospitality means that you have relatives over to your house for the holidays. That's a nice thing to do, and it's nice to have friends over for dinner. And that's wonderful, but that is not biblical hospitality. New Testament hospitality isn't entertaining people you know and you like and you feel comfortable with. Biblical hospitality is opening your homes to people you don't know, people you don't necessarily feel comfortable with. It is loving strangers. In fact, that is the exact literal meaning of the word hospitality. It's made up of two Greek words. One is stranger or foreigner, and the other is love or fond affection. It is to have a fond affection for strangers. It is to love strangers. Hospitality means the love of strangers, not the love of people who are your friends. Anybody can do that. I mean, unsafe can do that. Remember, these are qualities for a Christian leader. These are not just qualities for anybody. These are spiritual qualities. There is nothing virtuous about an unsafe person inviting his friend over. Anybody can do that. It's when you can invite your enemy over that it's really special. Not that strangers are necessarily our enemies. So when Paul says that an elder must be given to hospitality, it doesn't mean that he is constantly inviting church members to his home. It doesn't mean that his home is just open for anyone in the church to stop in at any time. That's okay if you want to do that, but that's not what this is talking about. And we ought to obviously be open to the members in the church, but that is not the true biblical definition of hospitality. Now, why is this so important for an elder? Why does Paul include it here? Because in the ancient world, hospitality was looked upon as an act of love. And it's looked upon that way, I might add, in the modern world as well, but especially in the ancient world. Almost every time this word is mentioned in the New Testament, it is mentioned in the context of love. Let's look at that for a moment. Will you turn to Romans chapter 12? In Romans chapter 12, Paul is going to speak about love and he's going to speak about hospitality. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Now he is introducing this whole area of love. When you commit your life to the Lord and you present your bodies to him, you are going to be people who are loving non-hypocritically. 
real love, genuine love. He says in verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. But then look at verse 13. Contributing to the needs of the saints. And what does he say? Practicing hospitality. Always in the context of love. In other words, love, real, genuine love, opens its home to strangers. There's another reference, Hebrews chapter 13. Great passage. Hebrews chapter 13. Let love of the brethren continue. Great, wonderful. How do I do that? Do not neglect, he says in verse 2, to show hospitality to strangers. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. So here the writer to the Hebrews speaks about love, and he says that the way you continue in love is to open your home to strangers. Then if you look at 1 Peter chapter 4, and I just want you to see this is not coincidental. This was the mind and the heart of the New Testament writers. They put this together. 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 8, above all, Peter says, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. All right, Peter, how do I do this? Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. That means don't say, oh, I've got to do this. Oh, it's Friday night. Who do we have to have over now? No, he says, don't do it with complaint. Do it because you want to do this. He speaks, by the way, in verse 10 of the gifts, and it's very possible that there is a gift of hospitality. That's not what we're referring to now. But we are simply saying what the Bible says, that when the New Testament writers use hospitality, they always tie it in with love. And there's a good reason for this, very good reason. You must understand this if you're to appreciate where the biblical writers are coming from. In the first century, which is Paul's day, there was something that was a new development in the world. Never had happened before. It was so exciting to them. If they had newspapers and television like we have today, it would have been broadcast over every news program. And that is, the major development that changed the complexion of the world was that Rome built roads. The Roman Empire built roads all through the then-known world. Now, we, with our deluxe highways and freeway system and airplanes, don't think that's a big deal. But it is a big deal, and it was a big deal. This made traveling easier and safer than ever before. In Galatians 4.4, the apostle says this. He says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Have you ever wondered about that? It means at the very right time in history, God sent forth his son. One of the reasons why it was the right time in history was that Rome built roads, which meant that the gospel could spread throughout the world where it never could have before, not in the sense with the quickness and ease and safety that it could when Rome built roads. The Lord knew what he was doing. He didn't have the gospel come into a world that couldn't communicate it. Rome attached the city of Rome with all the other cities. You've heard the expression, all roads lead to Rome. In the fullness of time, it was at this very time in history when the gospel could be spread throughout the known world. Christians could travel now on these roads and they would spread God's word, but there was a problem that was attached to this. Where could they stay when they traveled? Where would they stay at night? There were no Holiday Inns, no Howard Johnson's. No fancy motels and inns. Yes, there were some inns. We read about this, about Bethlehem. When Mary and Joseph come, there was an inn. There was an inn we read about in the Good Samaritan parable. The Samaritan who brings the Jew to an inn in Jericho. They had inns, but it was a well-known fact that these inns were horrible. They were horrible places. They were dirty, they were expensive, and they were known for their immorality. Many prostitutes prostitution going on in these places. They were filthy, expensive, and all the things that are attached to places you don't want to stay. In one of Aristophanes' plays, Greek writer, Heracles asks his companion where they will lodge for the night, and the answer is where the fleas are fewest. 
That was how they determined where to stay. You get a little bit of a picture of the inns in those days. Plato spoke of the innkeeper being like a pirate who holds his guests to ransom. You understand a little bit of the feel for that. So due to the problems with inns, traveling Christians looked for a place to stay, and they were not looking so much for an inn, especially because of the immorality, but they wanted to stay with fellow believers, and they looked for fellow Christians to open their homes. In addition to traveling preachers, and not necessarily people who would stand in a pulpit and teach, but just traveling Christians, there were Christians who were made homeless due to persecution for their faith. There were slaves without homes of their own. There were widows and orphans who needed places to stay. There were times where famine would hit an area and they couldn't go back to their homes. That's what happened, we read, in Acts chapter 11. And then in Acts chapter 2, there were Jews who came to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. They were saved, and they didn't want to go back home yet. They needed to stay there and be grounded in the Word and be taught by the apostles. Well, hospitality needed to take place. Believers at Jerusalem needed to open their homes to them. So you had all kinds of reasons why you would open your home to a stranger. And I don't think this just means a Christian stranger, but any stranger. Now that was the situation in Paul's day. And a man who closed his home to strangers in need was also closing his heart. Do you understand that? To close your home to someone in need was to close your heart to them. And that's why this is a great virtue, because there are needs. A lack of hospitality would indicate a far deeper problem, and that would be the lack of love. It would indicate a lifeless, loveless, selfish lifestyle. Now, we may have nice ends today, but there is still a great need for Christians like you, for me, to open our homes and our hearts to strangers. And an elder is to be a model of exemplary love. He's to be a model so that everybody else will follow and see what he's to do. Now, the whole church is to be given to hospitality. We just read that in Romans. We just read that in Hebrews. We just read that in 1 Peter. But the elders are to model that. I'm to be a model to you of opening my home to people. All the elders here, the six other elders, are to be models to open our homes to strangers. New people in the church. People passing through. Missionaries. Others who need places, perhaps the people who are on the streets, we need to be open to the Spirit of God to do that. So hospitality is a responsibility of every one of us, but it is the pastor's concern that they must be models to set the example for you. I just touched on it, but let me just give you some very specific and applicable ways you can show hospitality. It could be a new person or a family in the church. I'm amazed how many of us are insensitive to new people in the church. People who have moved to Florida... Maybe they don't like it in Florida. Maybe they've seen one of our palmetto bugs and they want to go back north. You know how that is. First time I saw one of them, I thought it was a rat. I remember that. When we moved to Miami, I saw one of these. I jumped into my dad's arms. I mean, I was 15 years old. And I thought, what are we doing here with those things running around? And they told me that they also come in your home. Great. Well, there are people who move from up north, and they come down here, and they come to a church, and they're looking for people to invite them over and open their homes, and we're busy inviting our friends over. We're busy having a great time with people we know. It's not right. It's not right. So it could be a new person or a family in the church, someone who's lonely. I'll never forget the time I speak from personal experience. Michelle and I graduated from Moody Bible Institute. We got married in Minnesota. We came down here because I knew the former pastors. I was allowed to preach at times. I was involved in the church. And I think everybody sort of assumed that people were reaching out to us. Let me tell you, very few reached out. It was a very lonely time. It was a time leaving church on Sunday evenings where we would both feel like crying. So I speak from my own experience There's a great need for you and for me to reach out to new folks in the church. They may not cry in your presence, but they leave and either they cry or they feel like it. 
And elders need to set the example. We need to reach out to new folks. But there's only so many folks that the seven elders can reach out to. Everybody's got to take a part in that. See, an elder can't be cliquish. He may have close friends, and I've read books where it says elders and pastors cannot have close friends. I think that's ridiculous. Elders can have close friends. I can have close friends. It means that I don't have to spend all my time with them. Nothing wrong with being close to someone as long as I'm not cliquish. As long as I don't exclude other people. As long as my home is open to people. Why is that important? Because an elder's home needs to be open so that people can observe his lifestyle. An elder's home needs to be open so that people can come in and see how he speaks to his children, see how he deals with his wife, and see how he handles his private life. A pastor's life, in many ways, to be an open life. And so he's not to be cliquish. He's not to just isolate himself with his closest of friends. And there's a balance there. We could show hospitality by opening our homes to a traveling Bible teacher. That's a great ministry. We have people coming through all the time in our church, and we have traveling missionaries, and we have people who have served the Lord, and they're looking for places to stay, and we can do that. He might not want to stay with you. I don't know. But at least we ought to say we're willing to open our homes and to give you anything that you need in our home. We have the missions conference coming up. What a great need that is to open our homes to them. And for meals, hospitality is not necessarily spending the night at your home. It could mean that. Many times it will mean that, but it could mean just a meal. Now, I'm not saying that as just a plug for the missions conference. I'm just saying that because that's what the Word of God teaches. So we need to be willing, and not only willing, but do it, to open our homes to missionaries. It could be a friend of a friend. We live in an area in the country where people are always coming down in the winter, and some in the summer, too. I remember a few years ago, the Hertzbergs had some friends down here from up north, the Chicago area. Michelle and I invited them over after dinner, and we had a great time with them, and they just couldn't get over it. And they said, well, why are you doing this? I mean, you don't know us. And I said, well, this is the way the Hertzbergs would treat you if they were just here. And so we're just doing it for them. See, and I'm not saying that to pat ourselves on the back. I'm just saying that's what ought to be going on as a norm. People come down, they know somebody, but those people aren't here. So we just reach out to them, and we just make them feel very comfortable on their vacation. It could be a poor person in need. It could be some of the folks we're ministering to on the streets. Could be that. It could be a college student. It could be a foreign exchange student. Could be somebody you want to just have into your home and hopefully you can share the gospel with this person. Could be a number of things. Now, I want you to understand, I'm not saying that you take in everybody indiscriminately. I'm not saying if somebody has a long police record, you just take them in and you don't think about that. You don't want to knowingly put your family and your house in jeopardy. But be careful. Be careful because there are always risks involved in taking in strangers. You're never free of risks. And it depends on your attitude. It depends on if you can trust the Lord. There will be people you'll take in where you just have to trust the Lord for your safety. There will be people you'll take in who you wonder, well, are they going to steal from us? You know what? They might. They might steal from you. You can trust the Lord on that. And whatever they take, believe me, the Lord will reward you. I just heard about a situation recently where someone took some people in, not in our church, but in a different church, and yeah, they ripped them off. But listen, those people are in for a great blessing. God's going to take care of them for doing what's right. So we're not saying don't use your head, but we are saying risks are involved. That's the point of strangers. It was no different in Paul's day. Just because someone said, I'm a traveling Christian, doesn't mean they weren't a ripoff artist. There were people who did that kind of stuff then, and they do it now. I want you to know the Bible gives us a lot of examples of men and women who opened their homes to total strangers, and they took risks. The broad principle, will you turn to Leviticus chapter 19? This is the broad Old Testament principle, which is followed up in the New Testament, about loving strangers. In Leviticus 19, way back in the law, 
God said this, verse 33, when a stranger resides with you in your lands, you shall not do him wrong. A foreigner comes in amongst you, the community of Jewish people, don't do him wrong. Why? The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Why? For you were aliens in the lands of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. What God is saying is you Jewish people understand what it is to be a foreigner in a strange land. You understand what it is. You were in Egypt and you were slaves and you were foreigners there. So be sensitive to the foreigner who comes into your midst. That is a very interesting place for us to end our study today. But tomorrow, Pastor Steve will pick that topic up again with this question. Is there a parallel to Leviticus chapter 19 in the New Testament? Well, the short answer is yes. The long answer is, hmm, tune in next time to Verse by Verse to find out what the Apostle Paul meant in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Pastor Steve Kreloff is the pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. He's our teacher on Verse by Verse. And I have been asked to extend to you an invitation to worship at Lakeside if you are ever in the Clearwater area. You can find out more information about Lakeside Community Chapel, such as location and service times, by surfing over to lakesidechapel.com. That's lakesidechapel.com. Of course, I would also like to invite you to the next verse-by-verse broadcast as we continue to study 1 Timothy chapter 3 and God's standards for church leaders. 